Good evening. Tonight's Bible reading is from John. It's the fourth of the four Gospels at the beginning of the New Testament. We're reading chapter 1 from verse 19. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you a prophet? He answered, no. Finally they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take us back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one who you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him, and I myself did not know him. But the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, Follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, he was, We have found the one who Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything could come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, He truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. 
He then added, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. I wonder if you've ever been invited to an event or, or an experience that, well, the person said, you just got to be there to, to understand what I'm talking about. It's just, it's so profound, you just, you just got to turn up and, and experience it with me. I remember when I was in high school, living in Gympie, where I spent my high school years, uh, someone asked me, would you like to go and see the State of Origin at Suncorp Stadium with me? And I said, yes. And so it was a Wednesday back then, and so I got in the bus, and we went to Brisbane, and I remember walking into the second level of Suncorp Stadium just to a sea of maroon. The air is electric, and it was pretty amazing. Uh, from a, for a country town kid, it was kind of amazing to see it and experience it. And I'm pretty sure we lost, actually, and it was a long bus ride home with one New South Wales supporter stuck in the bus with us. I wonder if you've had experiences that you've just got to be there, and they're life-changing. I invited to go to India after my first year of uni. I went there for six weeks and spent some time with polio kids. And, yeah, incredible. I can't even begin to describe it. When I was at university, I got, uh, when I was at Bible College, sorry, I got invited to go to the national training event uh, in Canberra, which is for all the AFES students, there's about 2,000 turn up. And I went to that, and it kind of blew my mind to be in an auditorium with 2,000 other Christian uni students. I was there to kind of help run Bible studies, and I hear them singing and studying God's Word. Profound. What an invitation to accept. In this section of John, it's all about invitations to come and experience something profound and be changed. To come and see and be changed. And we see that exact phrase twice, basically. Jesus uses it once and the disciple uses it once. Come and see. But the whole section is all an, all an invitation. And so the servant service outline, it has four reasons to come and see. And the first one is come and see the evidence. It would be wonderful if we could go and see Jesus in person, wouldn't it? How wonderful would that be to have coffee with Jesus? I think he'd be a coffee drinker. And uh, to sit down with him and to chat. We can't do that. The truth is, the people who read the Gospel of John couldn't do that either. It may have been written 2,000 years ago, but it was written to people who lived on the earth after Jesus had ascended into heaven. And so the invitation to come and see for them was much like us. John is writing to people just like us, really. People, he wants them to follow Jesus, and yet they can't actually ever see him on this earth physically. And we see that the, the purpose of this book, we've talked about it a few times, but the purpose is that we would see and believe. John 20, verse 13 31, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. And so my first point is that we come and we see the evidence. Throughout this first chapter, there's a word, actually the root word in Greek, martis, which gets used over and over and over again. And we would translate the following words into things like witness or testimony or testimony uh, or, or testifying. We actually get an English word that comes out of the etymology of this Greek root, martis. What do you think that word is? 
martyr. Yeah, right? Somebody gives testimony or witness even when suffering or potentially dying for their testimony. Anyway, this root Greek word uh, in its various forms is found over and over. And it's a word which is meant to kind of say, I'm, I'm an eyewitness. I testify and you've got to trust my account. It's the, the language of the courtroom where you may declare something you've seen. And over and over and over, our writer, John, records it in the gospel. And in this first chapter, he particularly records it when John the Baptist uses it. Let me read I'm going to go back a little bit into John 1 and start at verse 7. Let me read some, some passages and I want you to count how many times we hear this language. So chapter 1, they're all from chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, but he came only as a witness to the light, verse 15. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Verse 19. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. Verse 32. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. Verse 34. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Seven times, right? Seven times in one chapter, 47 times in the gospel, more than any other book in the Bible. And what is John saying? What is he driving home? He's driving home the point that this isn't a myth, this isn't made up, this isn't embellished, this is eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. He's advised to come and see the evidence. If you want to come and, and hang out and see what Jesus did, John is saying, come and see it through my eyes. Come and see it through the eyes of the witnesses like John the Baptist. I've recorded their testimonies accurately for you. Come and see what happened. You may not be able to do it in person, but you can do it through these persons who, who saw and have recorded. And what was the testimony we hear from John the Baptist? He says that Jesus is God's chosen one. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the anointed King, the Christ. He, he saw the Holy Spirit come down upon him and he sees that he's sent by the Father. And we're going to do that. We're going to come and see the evidence over the next four months. Uh, week in, week out, we, we go to Bible studies, and we come to church and we read these eyewitness accounts and see f- kind of firsthand through them what Jesus did. But we don't just see the evidence. That's, that's really just part of it. We want to come and see and follow. That's my second point. Verse 35. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When his two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They take it very literally, this idea of following, don't they? They hear the incredible news of who Jesus is, and so they follow. It sounds like they literally just lag behind awkwardly. So Jesus eventually just turns around and says, all right, what do you want? This is, you know, you're following me. And, uh, and what do they do? You know when you want to you ask someone to lunch or ask, be asked by them to lunch, but you don't want to say that, so you kind of just have leading questions like, what do you, what do you want for the rest of your day? Anything special? Do anything for lunch? 
I've got nothing planned. I like food. Um, you know, your blank faces. Okay, not all, I'm not as popular as you are, you know. That's what they're doing. They say, like, Jesus says, what do you want? And they're like, oh, where are you staying? And why would you ask that? But Jesus, he sees their hearts. He says, come. Okay, come and follow me. Come have dinner with me. Have lunch with me. And they do. And so they go with him. We find out later, the one, one is Andrew, who will become one of the 12 disciples. And they spend the whole day to about four in the afternoon with Jesus. What do we learn? I think we learn that to follow Jesus requires following. Twice, John the Baptist actually says to his disciples, here's the Lamb of God. The first time, they do nothing. They just stand around John after he gives them the most incredible news they've ever heard. That's the Lamb of God. And they just, they're just happy, but they don't do anything. But the next day, he says, that's the Lamb of God. They go, and they literally follow. And if you are someone who calls yourself a follower of Jesus, but your life really hasn't changed since you've become a Christian, it's pretty much the same as it was before, I don't think you're actually a follower. You could be an enthusiast of Jesus, a scholar of Jesus, but you're probably not a follower of Jesus. Because the follower requires change, requires movement, it requires walking behind him in his steps. It requires hanging out with him. Francis Chan uh, writes in his discipleship study book, Multiply, he says this, when Jesus called his first disciples, they may not have understood where Jesus would take them or the impact it would have on their lives, but they knew what it meant to follow. They took Jesus' call literally and began to go everywhere he went and do everything he did. It's impossible to be a disciple or a follower of someone and not end up like that person. It's the whole point of being a disciple of Jesus. We imitate him, we carry on his ministry, and we become like him in the process. Yet somehow many have come to believe a person can be a Christian without being like Christ, a follower who doesn't follow How does this make any sense? Many people in church have decided to take the name of Christ and nothing else. The concept of being a disciple isn't difficult to understand. It just affects everything. How are you going to following Jesus? Not just understanding with your head, but then actually living out with your heart and your actions. We're going to spend the next four months thinking about what it means to follow Jesus as we read about his life. But I want you to think that through. How are you following him? So come and see the evidence. Come and see and follow. Next, come and see together with friends. Andrew, I'm in verse 40 here. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the, of the two who'd heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You'll be called Cephas, which is translated to Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, Follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We found someone, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about who the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. You see the pattern, right? John sees Jesus. John tells his disciples, Andrew. Andrew follows Jesus. 
Andrew goes and finds Peter, brings Peter to Jesus. Peter follows Jesus. Jesus calls Philip. Philip follows Jesus. Philip goes and finds Nathaniel and brings Nathaniel to Jesus. Disciples make disciples. People who have found Jesus find others for Jesus. People that have found Jesus find others for Jesus. I think if we got a show of hands and I said, in your salvation story, were other people involved? I think everyone would put their hand up. Very few people are saved in total isolation through a tract or just a Bible on its own. For most of us, our story is someone who had found Jesus came and found us and brought us to Jesus. Maybe a parent or a grandparent or a camp leader or a youth leader or a pastor or a Bible study or a church. But it involves people. We find Jesus together. I wonder how you're going at that. And why don't we, why don't we do it more? Well, I think the reason we don't do it more is exactly what happens to Philip. What happens to Philip? Well, he finds Nathaniel, verse 45, and says, found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. And Nathaniel says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? This kind of mocking tone, kind of tone Jonah used of townsfolk. But it's kind of like that. I mean... We find that Nathaniel comes from, later in John, comes from uh, Cana in Galilee. So he's a Galilean, just like Jesus, but in a neighboring town and with the kind of classic town rivalry that we have with Townsville. And so he says, you know, really? Messiah came from that place? It's mocking. But it's probably also a serious question because, you know, we see the prophecy uh, in Micah 5 verse 2 that where will, what town will the Messiah come from? Bethlehem. So how is it this man, this Messiah, comes from Nazareth when clearly it should be Bethlehem? And isn't that the thing we fear? That we'll share the gospel with someone, say, I've got this great news about Jesus, and they'll ask us a kind of mocking, difficult-to-answer question. I'd love to talk to you about Jesus. I'm so excited our church is doing something to invite you to. And they say, I have thought about Jesus. I mean, where is he? Uh, in this, why can't we see him more, more in the actions of this world? Where was he during the Holocaust? Where was God's love you know, during the war in Ukraine? Now I ask you a hard question, kind of mock your belief. Isn't that the nightmare? What do you do? You know, Fumble for an answer? Do you back away? Do you get offended? Do you kind of try to win the argument? I think more of us would share the gospel if we do what Philip does. He doesn't do any of those things. He doesn't try to answer it. He doesn't have an answer, so he doesn't try. He doesn't get offended. What does he do? He says, come and see. I don't know the answer, but come and see. Let's go, let's go talk to him. There's such confidence there. Come and see this man, and you'll understand. We can do that, can't we? Evangelism isn't about winning debates it's about winning people for Jesus, introducing people to, to Jesus. So you can say, I don't have an answer, but why don't you come and check out my church and meet some people there? You say, come and let's open up the Bible together and, and read some of the gospel. And you can meet Jesus in, in the words and maybe he'll answer your question in his teaching. I say, come with me and let's go to youth together. And our youth leaders might help us think this through. Or come and join my Bible study for a night. Check it out. 
I think it's a great encouragement here to be inviting people to meet Jesus. Don't try to feel like you have to answer all the questions, but say, come and see him. Come and see him in, in, in the church. Come and see him with a wise Christian or a pastor. Come and see him together. Who could you be inviting to discover church? Two weeks away, doing dinner. It's going to be really nice. Um, going to be preaching on a really, really interesting topic about, you know, what is there for evidence for God? Who could you invite along? Say, come with me. Come with me. I'll sit with you. I'll pick you up on the way to church and you can come and check this out together. Come and see the evidence. Come and see and follow. Come and see together as friends. And lastly, come and see and stand in awe. Have you ever met someone and you talk with them and they just get you? And you finish that conversation like, wow. That was profound. I shared way deeper than I ever wanted to, but it was so profound. Maybe they're a bit more down the road than you and they know more about life. Maybe they're just insightful and gifted. Maybe they're a counselor. Maybe it's the beginning of a relationship and and, uh, you're so excited because you're falling in love and they're falling in love with you. I don't don't know, but that, that feeling, right, of being profoundly understood, that's exciting because, well, we don't really know ourselves, do we? We're a riddle to ourselves. Now, why do I do what I do? Why do I think what I think? And if they really get me, maybe together we could unravel me. Maybe. And it's also powerful if they're someone you really respect. If you really respect them and they get you and you think, wow, they actually think about me and ponder me. In January, Jacob and I flew to Sydney for a conference for MTS called the G8. One of the speakers was Gary Koo, who's the Bishop of Western Sydney, um, which is a huge space of land, lots of churches. Before that, he was a senior minister, one of the um, kind of really significant church planning churches in, in Sydney. And before that, 12 years ago, I knew him from him visiting my church regularly when I was a student minister. And I turned to the conference late because that train was delayed. And there's only two seats left in, in, the, in the auditorium. It's in full swing. And they're right next to Gary. So I go over and I reach out my hand quietly to say, hi, you don't remember me, but I remember you. And he says, Peter, it's good to see you. How's Emma? I hear you're in Cairns now. And I just choked back tears and said nothing. Now I shook his hand and was like, wow, you followed my story still. And he said, of course I did. It was actually really profound. I took a selfie with him later, sent it to my wife, printed it out and put it on my wall. Um, I feel so much better now. But to be remembered and known by someone you really respect, this is what happens to Nathaniel when he meets Jesus. This is what happens. He meets someone who knows him, who understands him, who he respects. Let's have a look. He walks up to Jesus, and what does Jesus say? He says, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. If you were reading the King James tonight, some of you maybe, it would say no guile, which is kind of a word we don't use very often anymore, but that's the kind of idea of it. It's about his character. It means you're not pretentious and you're transparent to all. Nathaniel looks at Jesus and says, You got me. That's me. I am transparent and a bit blunt sometimes offend people. and There's no guile in me. How did you know that, Jesus? And Jesus says, well, I, how, how, do I, how do I know you? I, I saw you under the fig tree. Now, some commentators think it's, well, Jesus was walking by and there was, there was Nathaniel under a fig tree and Jesus saw him. 
But then Nathaniel would be like, oh, that was you. Oh, I wonder who that was walking around with a huge crowd. Uh, but that's not the response, is it? He, he looks at Jesus and his eyes grow wide. and He says, you're the Messiah if you know that. How would you know that? So what happened under the fig tree? I have no idea. But whatever it was, it's a profound moment in Nathaniel's life. So profound that when Jesus says, I saw that moment, I know it. He, he knows straight away this man, is, he's got to be the Messiah to know that about me. It's a powerful moment for Nathaniel. But that's Jesus' attitude, attitude towards you. He knows you that well. I love that dynamic here. Jesus understands Nathaniel perfectly. If he knows what happened under the fig tree, he must know all his flaws, everything good and bad about him. And yet what does he do? He, he, he points out the best about Nathaniel and lifts it up and then uh, encourages him. And so that's the same with us. Jesus approaches us. He knows everything about you. He knows that profound moment when you uh, maybe gave your life to Christ at a camp or, or that profound moment um, maybe you had late one night thinking about your life. He understands all those moments. He sees your flaws and yet he lifts you up. That your generous heart, he loves it. Your kind spirit, your discipline reading the Bible, whatever it is, he looks at you and says, I see that in you and I know you. And so Nathaniel's left in awe. Here is someone who knows him and cares about him, who gets him. But that's, that's not the only thing that leaves him in awe. Jesus says, verse 50, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You'll see greater things than that. He then added, Very truly I tell you, you'll see heaven open. And the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What's going on there? Because we don't find that scene anywhere in the Gospel of John. We never hear a recording of Nathaniel seeing angels ascending into heaven, from heaven. In fact, no Gospel has that. So what's going on? I think Jesus is saying to Nathaniel and to us, I am the fulfillment of of the Old Testament. Where do we see the story or the image of angels ascending and descending on a ladder from earth to heaven? Genesis 28. Jacob. Jacob's fleeing from his brother. He's in the wilderness. He's tired. It says he makes a stone for a pillow. You've got to be tired if you're using a stone for a pillow. And he goes to sleep and he dreams and he sees heaven open and angels ascending and descending from heaven and he knows that God is nearby. That he's terrified, he's in the wilderness, but that God is nearby. Access to God is not that far. And he wakes up and he says, I will call this place Heaven's Gate because I know that God has been close to me. And Jesus says to Nathaniel, that's me. You're going to see that image fulfilled in me. I, I, I am what that dream was pointing to all those years ago. I'm going to be the gate of heaven. What does that mean? Does it mean that Jesus kind of flings wide heaven and lowers down the ladder to us to allow us to climb up, encouraging us, come on, you can do it. Keep going. Don't give up. Hold on tight. No, I don't think so. Because that's not what it says in the text. It doesn't say uh, that the Son of Man opens heaven. What is the role of the Son of Man in this text? Very truly, I tell you, you'll see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. 
Jesus saying, I am the ladder. The angels ascend and descend on me. The Son of Man is the ladder. I don't make you climb up to me. I am the ladder that's given down to you. I am the one who opens heaven, provides the way up. I'm the one who will get you into the presence of God. Just come to the ladder. Come to me and I'll do it. And we see that Jesus fulfills that dream. In fact, Jesus fulfills everything that points towards a Savior in the Old Testament. We've just done our first PTC course before the service, and that's what we're excited about, seeing how to spot that in the Bible. Think of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, what does he say when he sees Jesus? He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. What is John saying? He's saying that those lambs that were killed in the Exodus, whose blood was put on the doorpost to save God's people from judgment, all those lambs killed on the altar to save God's people from sin, they just pointed to that man walking by. No one got saved by a little woolly lamb. They were a placeholder for that man you see now, Jesus. He is the Lamb of God. He fulfills that role. See, Jesus is the true and better lamb. He is the true and better ladder of Jacob. And we're going to see that more and more as we go through the gospel. And so we should stand in awe of him, shouldn't we? How can we not stand in awe of this man? Who comes and connects us to God the Father. Doesn't encourage us, doesn't kind of make us work, comes as the ladder to, to bridge that gap that we could never bridge. What have we learned? We're going to come and see the evidence. Open up your Bibles and, and, and see what Jesus has been doing as he walked the earth. We're to come and see and follow. Don't just leave that as head knowledge. Get out and live it. We're to come and see together as friends. Invite someone along to discover church. Invite them to read the Bible with you. Invite them to have coffee with a Christian friend. Come and see and stand in awe of Jesus who understands you, who gets you, who loves you, and who's made a way to the Father for you. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much for this chapter. Uh, we thank you for the testimony of John the Baptist. We thank you so much uh, for the pattern we see of people who have found Jesus, finding others for Jesus. May we be a church that's missional like that too. May we go out and find people. May we be salt and light. May we be bringing people in uh, to know your Son. We ask that you would work through us, your humble servants, your children, that you'd work through us to glorify yourself and grow your kingdom here in Cairns. Help us to be opening your word and seeing what Jesus did. Help us to be having the courage to share it and help us to always stand in awe of him, in awe of him who knows us and saved us. Amen.